All right, uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, I just have a, uh, a, the state of Alabama wants me to read this as a service, public service announcement. If you're new to Alabama, we're about to experience a Bama winter. This is six or seven days of cold, maybe some ice and snow. Meteorologists will threaten snow, and it may snow and it may not, but if they say two inches, it could be 10, or it could be a half inch. It doesn't matter how much snow it is. We all freak out because we don't see snow often. The threat of snow or ice is, is your prompt to head to the grocery store and buy milk, eggs, and bread. I found that out yesterday. I thought it was, I thought it was Christmas. It doesn't matter if you need these items or not. You'll just buy them, milk, sandwiches, anyone. It's just what we do. Rest assured that everyone in town will be there. That was true. You also need to make a mad dash for faucet covers and finding them and getting out of the store and it will be like an episode of Hunger Games. <laughs> You're in the redneck district. <laughs> Don't look for a sled. You won't find one. And the rare chance we get enough ice or snow to sled grab, uh, grab some ca cardboard or a trash and can lid and go to the nearest hill, find the nearest hill. Just go with it, you'll be fine. We don't have equipment to handle the winter and the weather. The roads will be a mess, and even though the state has been telling you for a week they're ready, they're not, and it won't work. Just stay home if you can, and if you can't, just come to terms with the fact that nobody here knows how to drive in snow and ice. Thank you for the warning. Whatever you do, do not talk about snow tires. <laughs> if you, I like this one the best. If you happen to slide off the road or get stuck, turn on your flashes, take a deep breath, and wait. Two dudes in a four-wheel drive truck probably Bob over here, will be along in no time to offer assistance. Don't try to help them. They live for this stuff and will do what they can to get you back on the road. If either one of them, uh, them screams, they'll, hey, oh, watch this, hold my beer. Just get back and get your phone out and start recording, and you'll probably have a viral video on TikTok later. <laughs> no matter what you do, don't talk about how they did it back home in any of these scenarios. Nobody cares. You live in Alabama now. Alabamians know they live in the greatest state in the country, and it's our way or the highway. When we act like we're going to die or start to complain about the seven days of winter, just shut up. We're serious, and we don't care how much you love it. You'll be back in flip-flops within a week to ten days. It'll be nice until right around Easter. Alabama's second winter will be two or three days, and it will hit right about around Easter, usually the week before or the week after. This will hit right around the time you plant flowers in a garden. And we know you're not from around here when you see, when you see your, uh, you planted flowers before Easter and before the second winter has hit. This is why all the people at the nursery don't sound like us when you're shopping for plants. We know better. During second winter, it will go from 70 to 25, and you'll experience all four seasons in one day. <laughs> this too shall pass. I like this. Get used to it, and when second winter is over, you can enjoy three, four days of spring before summer gets here and it'll melt your face off and hot, and hot until sometime around Halloween. All facts, enjoy. Thank you, Molly, for sending me that. That's pretty cool. So um, I, I was reading the, uh, the, uh, the you know, talk about, uh, I'll listen to the way, you know, one to three inches and then it's gonna get really cold. And the ice is where you, is the scary thing because in Iowa they used to have some serious ice storms. I remember I mean, we talk about snow. I, I guess Buffalo is getting two feet. Two years ago, we had two feet of snow in Massachusetts, and uh, I tell people this way. I had a, I was living with my my mom and dad, so I had to get to the, the snow blower. But the, the snow drifted. I never did this when we were kids. Drifted all the way, so it was like about more like you know more than two feet. And I got to shovel through that 
just to get 10 feet to the garage from the back door of the house. So I get there and it was, you know, you got a snowblower, but it's, the snow is, I think it was like 35 mile an hour winds. I had these glasses on which fog up. And then I had my, I said, I had these gloves, the wrong gloves to go out there. And I come back in the house like, about five, 10 minutes in, I'm like, I'm screaming. My father goes, what's wrong? I says, my hands, I can't feel them. They're frozen stiff. So he gave me his thermal gloves he had, which I should have had in the first place. So I was able to do it about, took me about three hours to get to the whole thing. But snow is nasty. Iowa is even, even worse. They had, uh, I remember, 50 below one year. And that's not the wind chill factor. And the weird thing about Iowa is that you could have one or two inches of snow on the ground. They, I didn't believe this, but when I, I found out this quick, the first winter, one or two inches on the, on the ground, snow, and it's nothing but prairie. Nothing stops the wind. And if it blows, it ices over the roads. And one year, 2008, it iced over the road, and that road was iced several different layers. It never had a huge storm. We had three or four inches, three or four inches, a couple times a week. By you get time to February, I mean, there's you know, three feet of ice, and they couldn't get any further on the roads. So they ran out of sand and they ran out of uh, ice melt and all that stuff. And, and that, that winter was incredible, miserable winter. But I'm glad I'm in Alabama. When I was shocked, I heard, I mean, I, you probably left. I thought it was gonna be like 70s all year round. You know, I thought this is like, you know, but maybe that's the Gulf, even the Gulf isn't like that, right? So when I was, when, last year when I heard, uh, when I was out at Christmas, uh, you know, Bert sends me a picture and there's snow in the car. And it was, I look at the thing, it's like, Seven degrees? Are you kidding me? It gets that cold down there? So I had all my, my, my winter stuff at my parents' house. I'm not going to need it. Well, when I had to come back for Kenny's thing, I better take some of this. So I say, so finally, all my winter stuff is now here in Iowa, and it's a good thing because it does get kind of cold. So, anyways. But, you know, another thing before we get going here, um, you know, uh, Bert mentions about, uh, we talked about the, how it gets cold here and how you can concentrate. I get, this is a true story. Bob McLaughlin, who I, use, I got ordained by, he used to have it, he used to like it cold. And the reason why is because if it's too warm, it's a tendency to go nod off. He says when it's cold, you're on the edge of your seat. I mean, and the girls, he said, just girls, just wear, your wear a sweater or something or a or, or blanket. He would have it, he would crank it down to like 62. It was like, and, and the women are like going nuts, you know? But it was funny, so he, th he believed it, and I, I agree with him that the cooler the better. It's good for you, you know? Anyways. Um, Good to have you all here that you ventured out into the cold. At least you're not people who don't come to Bible class that I used to have in Iowa. And the wind blows over 20 miles an hour, they couldn't show up. I mean, I've really had people like that. So glad you're all here. Should be, uh, can you turn now to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1? Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. I'll just remember too, uh, for we have uh, at the end of this month, it's uh, on the last Wednesday of the month, we have a corporate prayer meeting. And uh, those have been going well. So I think that falls on the 31st, the last day of the month. So Wednesday, the 31st, is our corporate prayer meeting. And also we're continuing our study of the Day of the Lord on our Wednesday classes. And uh, so uh, we've got a big one coming up Wednesday. Hopefully uh, everything will be all set. We, be, we can go back on the roads. Hopefully it's not uh, too crazy. But all right, so Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. And on the board, you can see in the first session, we're going to wrap up our study we're going to wrap up our study of uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. As I told you, it's, uh, the content will determine how long I stay on a verse. So um, this is not the one I want. Hold on a sec. And, all right. Now I deleted it. Hold on one sec. I must have... Uh, No, 
Okay. Sorry about that. All right. So, sorry about that. We get, in the first session here, we'll be looking, finish offing, finishing off Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. And uh, today, it's going to be interesting, uh, uh, this, this session will be pretty interesting because we're going to talk about there, there'll be processions of angels, elect angels, will assist the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent. So we're going to go to a couple of passages, like one in Matthew, one in Second Thessalonians. And there's a, well, so in this first session, in other words, we're going to talk about angels. Now, if you look at verse 6, back at 3.6 in the NIV, you don't see any mention of angels, but I'm going to show you. It's alluding to angels here, and the translation is, uh, is, uh, is incorrect. So I'm going to show you why. I'll give you my explanation. And uh, again, the great thing about this uh, passage, and we'll see this in the second session as well, we're in the midst of this great prayer warrior psalm about the Lord Jesus Christ. As we pointed out, and we, and we explained our reasons why this is prophetic, and speaking of the, the, the tribulation period, and in particular the second advent to Christ, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, and it also alludes to certain events in the past that the Lord performed on behalf of the nation of Israel, the Exodus generation, where they, he delivered them out of uh, enslavement to Egypt and Pharaoh. So, the, but primarily it's prophetic of the, of the second advent of Christ in the tribulation period. And so what we're going to see, and I've been talking about this, especially when you see verses 3 through 6, there's, we got, we're, gonna, we're able to track the movements of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent, and other his, his military movements which is quite interesting. And we actually even have a reference uh, of uh, him killing the Antichrist in this passage. So the other thing is interesting too is that uh, with this, uh, it's, it's actually lyrics to a song. It's a psalm, and they call it, and you can see that at the end of the, of the book, but it's quite, uh, it's poetic prof prophecy is what it is. So it's quite fascinating. So um, we'll be looking at uh, this passage today, finishing off Habakkuk 3.6, where processions of elect angels will assist the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent. So without further ado, uh, let's take a moment of silent prayer. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, he, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, he purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which he's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing, distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us. We thank you for another day to study your almighty word. I thank you for everyone that is here this morning that's ventured out into the cold weather. 
We just thank you, Father, for all the blessings that we have logistically, the food, shelter, clothing, our jobs, our businesses, our salaries, our homes, our families. We just thank you, Father, for our children, and uh, we just thank you, Father, for the freedoms that we have in this country. We thank you for our leaders, military and political. We pray that you give our leaders the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country. I pray you have your hand upon the upcoming election. And I also pray, Father, for uh, those who are protecting us in the military uh, from the enemy with outside of our borders and also various paramilitary organizations like the police and whatnot, FBI, that are protecting us from the enemy within our borders. And I just pray, Father, for our, uh, the church in America that you would impress upon us the importance of doing what your word tells us in 1 Timothy 2, that we should pray for our leaders and give thanks for them, and also and the purpose of which is so that we might live a tranquil and quiet life, and also because you, more importantly, uh, that you uh, desire all people to be saved and come to experiential knowledge of the truth. I also thank you for this, uh, this uh, congregation, Father, and I thank you, Father, for each and every one of them and also our leadership in our church. I pray you give us and the leadership in this church uh, the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this congregation according to the principles that are found in your word and bringing glory to you in the process. I also pray for this uh, lesson here this morning in the first session. I pray that you would help your people in the audience to learn, understand, and to apply what they're being taught by the Holy Spirit. Help them be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. And please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening because we know, as your, your servant Paul said in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, that uh, our great enemy is not flesh and blood, but Satan and his kingdom and his fellow evil spirits. I pray that you would help me as well uh, to concentrate by the Spirit and, and communicate your word with accuracy and clarity, reverence and respect and power. And I just thank you again for the great honor and the privilege that you give me to communicate your word to your people who you purchased with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray for this lesson in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. So, in the uh, uh, final session of uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6, we'll be looking at uh, a little bit of a translation interpretive issue, and then once we come to the, when we come to the conclusion is, as, as we'll see, and I'll give you my reasons for it, actually the last assertion in uh, Habakkuk 3, 6 is telling us that processions of elect angels will assist the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent, and it's really, the issue revolves around one particular word which can be used for processions. Uh, with a king and whatnot. So we're going to talk about that this morning, and that, that'll be in our first session. And then, in the second session, we'll be looking back at 3.7, and we'll see that, uh, talk about the, the, uh, the te, uh, Midian and Cushion, and uh, where these places are, and we'll find out uh, that they're down toward where Edom is, or was, and that would be the southern kingdom of Judah today. So when we get to verse 7, we're going to be tracking, as I said before, the movements of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be going back to that passage in Isaiah chapter 3, uh, verse, uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3, which talks about Jesus Christ coming from Bosworth with blood on his garments. And we look at this passage in Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 6, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ at a second advent will be down in that region of uh, Edom, and uh, he will uh, wage war against Antichrist, I believe, down that area. And yes, he's going to be at the Mount of Olives, and, uh, but he's going to march, and uh, he, he is, he's, the, he's a warrior, he's going to be marching. Many passages you see of his second advent, he's marching. In fact, when you listen, when you read the Gospels, I, I think it was Mark, I'm not sure, it might have been Matthew, when he made his move to go to, to, Cal uh, to Calvary, to go to the cross, 
he was marching towards Jerusalem, and they were saying, "Wow, why he's he was like in a mar he was marching, and basically." And they were trying to you know keep up with him because he, he knew he had to go and, and, and to wage the greatest military victory of all time, which was the cross. He the, he, he defeated our greatest enemy, Satan, at the cross, and he did that and in his weakness. And, then the, and the great power of God was manifested in his human weakness. And so he set an example for us. And uh, he said, we're in union with Jesus Christ. He set us, gave us the example to follow in his footsteps using God's invisible assets, his, uh, the, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, the, the combat boots of the gospel, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All these, the, 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 the shield of faith, all of these things are related to our, our military analogy for our union identification with Jesus Christ. So the word of God and spirit is the sword of the spirit and also prayer, which must be according to what the spirit's teaching us in the word of God regarding the Father's will. Because all prayer to be successful must be according to the Father's will. And we saw that modeled perfectly for us in the gospels by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So a lot of people don't like this, but the Bible has a lot of allusions to military uh, conflicts and whatnot. We're in a place of war, at a time of war. During the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, there will be no war. It'll be abolished. And uh, we see that that, that has only, can only take place because Jesus Christ will exercise his omnipotence at his second advent to destroy his enemies violently. And so this is something that people in America and around the world, where they, with the liberal theologians, they're like, they don't want to talk about this stuff and, uh, because they don't think it's uh, biblical. But it is biblical. It's just they, they don't, it, Jesus doesn't fit into their picture that they have for him. So they like the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the meek and mild Jesus, but they don't like the Jesus who is the Lion of Judah, who is a tremendous warrior. And uh, who was it? Uh, I think it was uh, Douglas MacArthur. I wrote the speech down uh, because... Um, when he, they were doing uh, uh, MacArthur Park, dedicating it to him in 1952, I think. And uh, uh, I remember the colonel read his speech. I still have it somewhere. And I actually uh, transcribed it down from the tapes. And, uh, you know, he made this great comment. And, and MacArthur was a, a big-time believer. But he said, make this comment that the, the soldier is the closest thing that we get to Jesus Christ, sacrificing for his people. And you know, in our case, like in Vietnam and a lot of times in this country now, people don't appreciate what the American soldier does. You know, they're giving their lives, risking their lives. They have families and children too. They had jobs and everything and they come and they go out and they fight their, their, their country's wars, you know, the battles that they've been given and they to, to serve their country and their people. And that, isn't that, isn't that, they go through many hardships in their family. That's the spiritual life. So people like I find in my case, in my experiences, is that people who have a military background, they're, they, they, they're, they're, I find them to be, understand this. You know, when I talk about a spiritual combat unit and discipline and, 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 and overcoming hardship, you know, and, and different. I talked to some of the guys in here who have gone through tremendous hardship in their, in their service for this country. You know, that's, you know, so you got to leg up on the civilians because, you know, the, uh, you know what it means to sacrifice and be away from your families and be away from and having to deal with terrible adversities and see terrible things and seeing the worst side of people. All right. So Jesus Christ, he understands you guys very well. And he understands uh, the, the suffering that you have gone through and for your country and your loved ones and, 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 your, and your fellow citizens. So we, as, as uh, Jesus Christ, is our king and our ruler, and he is the great divine warrior, we call him in Scripture. And this passage, this prophetic prophecy 
uh, song, the lyrics to a song, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through six, uh, 15, is a fantastic uh, poetic description of, of the movements of Jesus Christ and his actions at his second advent. So let's look at Habakkuk chapter 3. Let's read the whole chapter, and we'll look at verse 6, the last uh, statement in verse 6 for the rest of the class. Habakkuk 3, 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shagayanoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord, which he read in the scriptures. Renew them in our day, in our time make them known, and wrath remember mercy. And all of that was fulfilled uh, with the southern kingdom of Judah and the faithful remnant in the 6th and 7th century B.C.s, as we pointed out. Now we have the great divine warrior song coming up, uh, beginning in verse 3. God came from Teman. And uh, that's uh, some place that we would call, it's a place called uh, Jude, the Kingdom of Jordan today. And we see that also the Holy One from Mount Paran, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says Selah, which means it's a rest in the music, but it's also a, an, an opportunity to reflect on what's being said. It's a significant statement here, prophetic statement. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and he shook the earth and he looked and made the nations tremble. This will all be fulfilled at the second advent of Christ when he touches the earth at the Mount of Olives. There'll be a massive worldwide earthquake. The ancient mountains crumbled as a result and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. We'll talk about this. This is not a correct translation, as we'll say. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress and the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? And this is what he'll be doing, as we'll see, with the seven seal trumpet of bold judgments. He's going to pour out his wrath on the creation, on planet Earth. As a result, remember, the, the, the whole Earth is under a curse because of the fall of Adam. So because of the, the sinful nature of mankind and its unrepentant sinful nature, refusing to believe in Jesus Christ, God's going to pour out his wrath upon the environment that man finds himself. So were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Silah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by and the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode the earth, and in anger you thrust the nations. You came out to deliver your people, that's the Jews at, during the tribulation period, and to save your anointed one. And the anointed one is speaking not of Jesus, it's speaking of the nation of Israel. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, speaking of the Antichrist, as we'll see. You stripped him from head to foot, Selah. With his own spear you pierced his head. <clears throat> Excuse me. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And then, verse 16, we have the end of the psalm, and now we have uh, Habakkuk expressing his faith, despite the fact that his people, he's just been told by God in this conversation with God, this dialogue, and the first two chapters of Habakkuk, that the Babylonian Empire is about to destroy his nation. Okay? And Jeremiah says it'll be, his contemporary will be 70 years, they'll be deported to Babylon, and they will not return until that time has been completed. The book of Haggai, which we studied, talks about this in detail. So, at the end of the completion of that 70 years in Babylon. So then it says in verse 16, 
So a great faith here, a great passage here. And I heard my, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us, which is Babylon. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, now, this is all because they're, whole, they're, an, they're an agricultural economy. It's going to be destroyed by the Babylonians' three invasions. And this is, what he's, this is his attitude this, toward this. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. This is why. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my string instruments. That last statement there is talking, is indicating to us that uh, Habakkuk was more than likely a priest who was a musician, and, and he wrote lyrics to this song. And by the way, the, the, the Temple of Solomon was about to be destroyed when Zerubbabel's temple was built, which the Book of Haggai talks about. We see that it eventually became Herod's temple. Herod expanded upon it. In fact, they were still in the process of uh, expanding upon it uh, uh, building upon it when Jesus walked into that temple about 2,000 years ago. They would be singing this song. I wonder how many there who would be singing this song in the temple, except maybe for Jesus knew that this song was about him at his second advent. But the cross must come before the crown. And listen to me. Jesus Christ won two great victories, militarily-wise, you can say in a spiritual military sense, at the cross when he defeated Satan and he defeated sin with his substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross. In other words, when he suffered the wrath of God by being abandoned by his father, those last three hours of the cross in total darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the, the suffering of the crucifixion and the scourgings, which he went through too, and then his physical death and the, the, the abuse and the betrayal of his own, his own people and abandonment of his disciples. And yet he stood firm the greatest soldier of all time and who had to face the worst suffering more than any soldier in history has ever faced. Nobody suffered like Jesus Christ. Nobody can identify with that. Being abandoned for us sinners because he loves us. And so the next one, the next great victory he's going to do is at his second advent when he destroys uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, the tribulational armies, and he imprisons Satan for a thousand years with his fellow evil spirits, the fallen angels, we call them. And that is, is another victory that's coming in the future. And by, by the way, this one will be first-hand witnesses to it because the church is coming back with Jesus at his second advent, along with the elect angels, as we're going to talk about today, and also the uh, tribulational martyrs that will be in resurrection bodies like us, the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Daniel, and Jeremiah, and Habakkuk, all be in resurrection bodies with us as well. And we're coming back to start the kingdom. A time there'll be no more war. The Day of the Lord series, we're talking about this millennial reign. Thousand years of peace, no war, no disease. The curse will be lifted. There'll be no tornadoes or ice storms or one to three inches of snow in Alabama. Okay, it'll be perfect environment. No more two feet of snow in Buffalo, which they're going to get today. So this is something that we have to look forward to. God wants you to know what's to come on this earth. And also, he wants us to know because the implication is how we're, to, we're supposed to live in a manner consistent with these events that God's about to perform for us in the future and giving us this world to rule over with him. 
You know, so how should we live? We should live godly lives. When we sin, we confess it immediately. First John 1, 9. We are, should be good, great students of the word of God. Man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you show your love for the Lord by doing what he tells you in the scriptures. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And the great commandment that sums, uh, sums them all up is love one another as I have loved you. As I gave my life, you to do the same thing for each other. Just like a soldier goes down and goes and, and, and do anything for his brother in arms. I've known many guys over the all the way back to World War II. I've talked to uncles who were in Korea and stuff. It was all about their buddies. At the end of the day, they had each other. And a lot of times, they, that's all they had was each other. They didn't know they were going to get out. So that is what we're, we should follow that. And as I said before, the guys who've been combat, they, they are way ahead of the game. They know what that's about already so in a spiritual sense now you guys are facing not the Iraqis or the, uh, the, the Taliban or the you know whoever else is out there the, the Russians or the Chinese or the Koreans or whatever you're facing an invisible enemy that is much more dangerous because he can't be seen and he can't be defeated with, our, with a gun you know he can't be defeated with a Glock okay he can't be defeated with a, a, a high powered missile it's an invisible enemy that can only be defeated by, say, uh, by God's power. The word of God and prayer, the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. And so this is, what the, this is what has been given to us as members of the body of Christ, the future bride of Christ that's going to reign over this earth. We must be good soldiers of Christ Jesus and go through difficulty and, and, and uh, trouble and, dis and, and trials and tribulations because through trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So... Jesus Christ is marching on in this to victory here. We're going to track his movements. We'll see what he's doing. And he's going to be accompanied by elect angels and us. And how should we live? We should live the spiritual life and grow up to maturity to be like Jesus Christ. Courageous. Courageous, is, is, is courageous in the face of adversity and trials and tribulations. A faith is what gives you that courage. Okay, faith will give you that courage. person who does not have faith will live in fear of everything. God wants you to be afraid of nothing because all your victories were vanquished at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. We're just appropriating the victory he's won for us already. And so we're reading about this future victory, which is imminent because once the rapture takes place, which is imminent, the resurrection of the church, then you're going to have these events unfold that we read about in the book of Revelation and Daniel and other places. Zechariah 12 and 14. So let me give you my translation <clears throat> of Habakkuk chapter uh, 3, verses 3 through 6 on the board. God will travel from Teman, then the Holy One will travel from Mount Paran, Silah. His majesty will cover the heavens so that his praise will certainly fill the earth. In fact, his splendor will be like lightning. Flashing rays of light will come from his hand on his behalf. Indeed, there it covers his strength. And this is talking about the exercise of his omnipotence at his second advent, where every Iowa shall see him, just like if you go, as I said before, in Iowa, and you can see both horizons, electrical storms I've seen at night, and the, the, the lightning will flash all the way across the, the horizon to one, on one side or the other. And that, when every time I saw that, I said, this is how it's going to be when Christ comes back. Every eye will see him. He'll orbit the earth, and he will be exercising his omnipotence, and we'll be seeing a displays of light we've never seen in this world. So, 
Verse 5 says, plague will proceed from his presence with a seven seal, trumpet, and bold judgments of Revelation 6 to 18, which is called the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation 6. Correspondingly, it says, pestilence will follow at his feet. And then it says in verse 6, he, Jesus Christ, will stand while he causes the earth to shake. When he touches the Mount of Olives, as we saw in Zechariah, there will be a massive earthquake. This corresponds with one of the, the judgments of Revelation. And it will be a worldwide earthquake, such as the world has never seen and will never see again, changing the topography of Jerusalem. Right now it's embedded in hills. It'll, it'll, be, up, it'll be protruding out. And people, the nations of the earth during the millennium will march up there to hear the king and worship the king. Hear the king teach, render judgments, and worship him. And we will be there as his bride. So he will look at that time while he causes the citizens of the nations to tremble in fear, while the ancient mountains will disintegrate. The primeval hills will be flattened, and ancient, ancient processions will assist him. So the seventh statement, which appears in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6, constitutes actually the fifth and final prophetic statement in this verse. And it asserts, as we can see, that ancient processions will assist the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent. <clears throat> now I said to you, if you look at your, your Bibles, that this is not seen in your translation. And I'm going to explain why it should be something different. It says, his ways are eternal. Let me give you some of the modern translations of this same verse. See if you can see these here. I'll blow these up really good for you. Okay, so the Net Bible, they say he travels on the ancient roads. And then we have his ancient, uh, his, uh, his are ancient roads. That's the second edition of the Net Bible. The ESV says his ways are everlasting ways, are the everlasting ways. And then it says in verse, the NIV says, but he marches on forever. The NIV 84, which is an upgrade on the NIV, they have his ways are eternal. Okay, so you notice that even within the NIV has changed a little bit in the, in the net Bible, and there's a reason for it. It's difficult. Uh, we see in today's NIV, but he marches on forever. And then the New American Standard says his ways are everlasting. The New Revised Standard Version says uh, the ancient, his ancient pathways will, uh, his, his ancient pathways, the everlasting hills sank low. That's interesting. In the Lexham Bible, the ways of old belong to him. The Good News Bible, the hills where he walked in ancient times. The New uh, English Bible, the everlasting hills subside. Uh, the New Living Translation, he is the eternal one. So I'm showing you these modern translations because they all differ from each other, and you'll find that from time to time. Uh, the, the, uh, we have the, uh, the REB. It says his journeys, he, he journeys as he did of old. So it's quite a, no, con, no consensus on the translation, and you will get that once in a while with the study of the Bible. But uh, there are commentators uh, that uh, you, can, you, you commentators that go into these things in detail, and I've gone through all of them, and I got my own exegesis and exposition of this particular book. If you want to know in detail the Hebrew and the grammar, syntax of any book I've exegeted, you can go download, download it on our website. And I give you explanations for my translation and why that is. So we see here that the interpretation the interpretation of the word haliho, olam lo, is ways eternal, is how the NIV 84 translates it. This actually, this expression constitutes the final prophetic statement in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6, and it has proven to be very difficult for expositors to interpret, and you can see from the translations 
that that is certainly the case. Now, the word that we're having a problem with really is the crux of the problem, is the word haliha. Haliha is the word that's translated ways by the NIV in your translation. Now, I'm going to read from you one of the many lexicons that I have. Now, a lot of people, scholars and Bible and pastors and Bible teachers, they use lexicons, Greek lexicons for the New Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament lexicons. And I, you know, a lot of people say when they go back to the original language, they oh, I look at the Strong's Concordance. That's not, that doesn't count. <laughs> That's kind of like really uh, kind of a general introduction to some Greek words. To, it doesn't really cat, uh, do what you need to do. It doesn't need to, do, it doesn't do what you need for it to do, these lexicons. So the, we have great ones now all over the place, Greek and uh, New Testament and Old Testament. And this one is uh, done by, uh, what is the, uh, there's Lau and Nita, they have a great one. But there's also, this is a man named Swanson does this particular, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, lexicon. So what the lexicon does, it'll take a word and it'll go throughout the Bible and it'll tell you what it means in particular context. And they'll take into consideration the grammar and syntax and everything. And now they're not inspired by God, but they're aids to, for interpreters and translators. So this guy Swanson has a, has a great translation in the, for the Hebrew. And it's for the, you know, he's with my Logos program. If you get Logos Bible software, which I highly recommend, you should check it out. Now, it's, we see here that this word haliha, it means, it can mean procession, they say. Procession, i.e. a marching activity of an enclave in honor of a king. Okay? That's one of the meanings of this particular word. Now, the context is going to determine what it means. Then we have, it can also mean a way. That's, i.e., the activity of walking and movement. And that's, uh, you can see that particular use of the word in Nahum chapter 2, verse 6. The, the word, uh, the meaning procession, which is a marching activity of an enclave in honor of a king, we see in Psalm 68, 25, which is also going to be important, critical, in understanding how it's being used in the back of 3 6. Okay? Then we have another meaning is traveling merchants. We see it in Job 6.19. Also, it can mean the affairs, matters, i.e. activities in a household, Proverbs 31.27. And also, lastly, it means a way in the sense of the activities of a person. And Swanson says he sees this particular use of the word in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. But I will disagree with him. I believe it means procession, as it, just as it does in Psalm 68. 25. So I believe that the plural form of this word, haliha, the plural form is haliho, okay? Here in Habakkuk 3.6, I believe it means processions. In the sense of a group of individuals moving along in an orderly, often ceremonial way. And specifically, I believe that this word refers to the procession of elect angels. Now, let me, before I go any further, this is why I took a whole class on trying to determine and giving you my reasons why Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, 15 is prophetic primarily. Because that will determine how you interpret this word in this passage. So if you don't, see, the, the, there are people like the Net Bible and other scholars are seeing a prophetic use of this, this psalm, Divine Warrior Psalm. So if you don't see that, and one of the only translation and commentators don't see that, they look at it as more Old Testament of the past, well, that's going to affect your interpretation of the word here. So, again, I believe that the plural form of this noun, haliha, here in Habakkuk 3.6 means processions. Of, that's a group of individuals moving along in an orderly, often ceremonial way. And specifically, I believe that this word refers to the procession of elect angels. And remember, 
The reason why I think this is several reasons I'm going to give you. One, elect angels, of course, are ancient. They existed before the creation of mankind. And this interpretation is also supported. This, is, this, uh, this interpretation, I believe, is... Uh, I'll back it up here, first of all. This word is modified by the word olam, which uh, means forever or ancient, and because it pertains in this context to something or someone which has existed for a long time in the relative past. So angels are ancient. They existed before mankind. So the word olam, which is with this word haliha, in Habakkuk 3.6, in the final statement, is modifying that word that's translated ways in your Bibles, which I, mean, which I believe means processions. So this interpretation, and notice I'm giving my reasons for these things, and you've got to be bear with me because a lot of churches don't like, I, find, I always find out who the, who the serious doctrinal people are. Okay? Can they sit and listen and try to be humble and try to let the pastor explain his interpretation? Because a lot of guys will say, just believe whatever I say. This is in the Roman Catholic Church and I'm not the Pope. And I don't wear a mitter and I'll sit in my little royal throne and giving out decrees, okay? You gotta use your mind sometimes. A lot of people come to church, they wanna be entertained. Hey, sometimes it'll be entertaining, sometimes it'll be fantastic, you'll laugh, sometimes it'll make you mad, sometimes it'll make you cry, whatever. But sometimes, most of the time, he needs to be thinking you think. We're gonna love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. So please be, be, aware, with, uh, be, uh, be uh, patient with me as I try to explain my interpretation because we can't talk about application what it means if you don't know what the text means and I don't know what the text means. People want application. Well, you got to get to interpretation. And, and you need something, there are some passages in the Bible like this that are a little bit difficult. So you got to roll up your sleeves and do a little work. No vegging, work. Okay? So it's not that hard. You just, you, some of you, and I know I'm just preaching to the choir, right? But there are a lot of people in my churches in the past that they could be, have tremendous jobs where they have to use their minds and really smart people. But when it comes to Bible class, that stops all of a sudden. Since when? You read Paul, that sounds like a guy who didn't have an intellect. That guy is a smart guy. You know, he used vocabulary that's more than two syllables. Okay? Pat Peter said the things that Paul taught at the end of his writing, at the end of Second Peter, the things that uh, Paul said are difficult at times. So here I am in the 21st century, and I go go back in the original languages, a language that, well, Hebrew's being spoken in Israel today, go back to an ancient language, okay, 2,000 years ago. How do I do that? How do I, we gotta find out what's the author saying, and once we know what the author's saying, what it meant to the original audience, then we can talk about what it means to us. So that takes work. So all of this isn't supported. My interpretation is supported by the fact that this use of the word here in Habakkuk 3.6, which appears only seven times in the Old Testament, is also appears in Psalm 68.25 for the processions of angels which serve God. Remember Swanson, this, uh, the lexicon I had that's used by scholars and pastors alike, they say one of the meanings of this word, haliho, haliha, haliha, excuse me, and the plural is haliho, is processions. It can mean ways, but it can also mean processions. So, we see that in Psalm 68, 25, and 24 and 25, it says, they see, the Net Bible, it's, it's the, there's a, they have, uh, it's 68, 25 in your Bibles, and the NIV is 68, 24 in theirs, but for different reasons. So they see your processions, look what it says. They see your processions, O God, the processions of my God, my King, who marches along in holy splendor. The processions are the angels. And there's another thing 
that indicates this. It says in Zechariah 14, 5, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, Matthew 25, 31, Revelation 19, 11 through 14, make clear that at his second advent, processions of angels, elect angels, will accompany the Lord Jesus Christ to planet Earth at his second advent, not just us. So I want you to hold your place. I know in my notes I have Zechariah and also uh, Revelation, but hold your place. We're going to go to the Zechariah one, and I want to go to the Second Thessalonians one, and maybe Matthew as well. So uh, hold your place. Go to Zechariah 14, please, verse 1. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. We're going to this passage quite a bit with chapter 12 of Zechariah because it speaks about the second advent and the millennial reign of Christ. And we'll be seeing this in the Day of the Lord series as well. So we'll get familiar with this passage. Look at Zechariah 14.1. Zechariah 14.1. Remember, he was a contemporary of Haggai, who we studied. And he, he was also involved in uh, exhortating the faithful remnant of Judah that came back from Babylon to finish the rebuilding Zerubbabel's temple. Okay? So Zechariah 14.1. A day of the Lord is coming... When your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided among you, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. This is the tribulation period. The last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, where you have the Armageddon campaign, and Antichrist is waging war against the Jews and trying to have a world domination. Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in a day to battle. He'll start off with the seven seal trumpet and bowl judgments of Revelation 6 to 18. Then he finishes it off with the second advent when he bodily comes to planet earth, touches the Mount of Olives, and wages war against his enemies, destroying everything in his sight. On that day, the second advent, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the, great, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. So this, this is the second advent where he's going to start the kingdom, destroying Antichrist, the false prophet, the tribulational armies, imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. Habakkuk 3, 6 is talking about this day. A day that you'll be witnessing to. You'll be a witness to it. Verse 5, you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You, the Jews at the time, will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Holy ones, all right, the church is considered holy, will be holy, will be perfected in a resurrection body, okay? In fact, the word saints, it's a hagios, it's in the plural, it can, some translations translate it holy ones. So you and I, if you studied sanctification with me, I look around, a lot of you did, right? It means you and I are holy, as Jesus is. Why? Because we're crucified, died, buried, raised, and with seated with Christ. He doesn't look at us according to our sins and transgressions. He looks at us as a new creation, part of the new humanity. We are holy, positionally, in a perfective sense, and living the spiritual life will allow you to experience that which is true of you positionally, and what will be true of you in a resurrection body and with rewards, namely, you'll experience your sanctification, the holiness of God. But also the angels are called holy ones in Scripture. 
So you could probably say the Old Testament saints at the time, because the church wasn't known at this time when they wrote this. We know the church is a part of the holy ones here, but we definitely know the Old Testament saints, and we would say this too, the holy ones are also speaking of elect angels. And you know, the word holy there, it's related to sanctification, means you're set apart to do God's will. You and I, at the moment of our justification, we, our conversion, we were set apart to do God's will exclusively. This gave us a plan for our lives. We're not here to do our own thing, have our own agenda. Churches are not about the pastor's agenda or the deacon's agenda or the board's agenda or anybody's agenda or the band's agenda. It's Jesus' agenda. It's the Father's agenda, and it's found in the Word of God. That's what we're here for and nothing else. Really, everything else is context. You, at the end of the day, I don't care, you could be a great parent. Did you do God's will? You might be a great parent to the world, but were you do, did you raise your kids in the ways of the Lord? Were you a great, you, oh, you were great, uh, you, were very, you were very wealthy, very successful, a lot of people knew you. You were a great entertainer, you were a great musician, but did you do God's will? Did you do God's will? Because that's all that really matters at the end of the day, boys and girls. It's all. <laughs> so we're holy. I'm bringing out the implications of this word. We're just like the elect angels, we're to do God's bidding on this earth. Okay? It's fantastic. Now, I want to uh, stop there and go to 2 Thessalonians. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Why are we going to these passages? Because the processions of elect angels will accompany Jesus at his second advent. We're going to those passages that talk about angels accompanying Jesus at his second advent. This is explicitly mentioned here. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church, when we do this book, we'll do both. When we do... First Thessalonians, we'll do Second Thessalonians right after, back to back. And uh, I don't know if that might be the next book we do after Habakkuk, I'm not sure. But what's interesting, these people were only Christians, they couldn't be Christians more than a year when Paul wrote these two epistles. And you look at the contents of the two letters, he taught them the full counsel of God. They knew their eschatology. They knew prophecy. They knew about the second advent, the tribulation period, the, second, the rapture of the church. They knew about the spiritual life. They know about spiritual gifts. Paul talks about all of this. And yet you find churches in America, and even in our town, Huntsville, who won't touch these the various doctrines of the Christian faith. They won't touch sanctification. They won't touch justification. They won't touch prophecy. They don't want to talk about the rapture. They don't want to talk about the spiritual life. They want to entertain you with a musician singing for three hours. You know, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. I'm being facetious, I'm being, you know, I'm being a little hyperbole there. In other words, the emphasis is not on the word of God. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. The early church, their first emphasis was the apostles' teaching, which is what the pastor should be doing. And not giving you some kind of baloney social program of his or kind of political gender or spot. You know, this will do it right-wing church uh, people are right-wing or left-wing and the pastor's not up there to espouse liberal politics or, or conservative politics his job is to do the work of the lord which is to teach the word of god i don't care about your, your policies or your politics who cares i want to know what jesus has to say and don't you dare 
put your liberal or conservative politics and put it, drape it over the cross. The cross transcends everything. We must understand that we're in a minority now. You're in a minority now in this country. Doctrinal ministries are going. They're vanishing from America. There's going to be a famine for the word of God in this land someday. So you need to pray and pray hard for your, for your country and for God would raise up positive volition in this country. And it's sad in this country. When you look at, the, the, I mean, they're building enormous churches down there. Waste of money. I don't care. You're jealous. I'm not jealous of it at all. I'll tell you right now what's going on in there. You can't have a big church with a lot of people, over a thousand people. You've got to be kidding me. You're, you're going to thin the crowd out if you're doctrinal. Did Jesus have big crowds following him? Yeah, but he thinned them out, didn't he? Eat my body, drink my blood. Most of his disciples left him. And he goes to them, you're going to leave me too? Read John 6. No, the, when you have a big, huge, massive crowds, how in the world can you minister to people? I know everybody, I want to know everything about my people. All my churches, I knew their kids. I played with their kids. I, with their, I knew their parents. I knew what they did. I know if someone's sick, you know, if someone like, you know, Ray's sick, okay? He almost died. He could have died. He's on the men. Lord of Passover, who? In a big church like that, no one even know he'd show up. He's even, who's Ray? I mean, if you, if you just, you know, somebody, like, you know, I had somebody in our church who was asking if somebody was okay in our church. They called him up. They hadn't seen him in a while. I love that. Yeah, we get the doctrine of privacy, but don't take it too far. Maybe the person is in the hospital, and that's why you haven't heard from them. You know, it shows you you care, right? So they were just checking on him. Good thing, okay? That's a good thing to do. But in a big, massive church, you don't care. they don't even know you're gone. And by the way, there's no accountability. The early church... They had 3,000 that get saved in the day of Pentecost. They were 12 apostles, weren't they? 3,000 divided by 12. Where's that? So I'm saying, when you get big churches, it, when you, it's, I'm very suspicious, for good reason, I'm usually confirmed, is that they're not, they're not teaching the full counsel of God, because if you do, you're going to tick people off. I'm sure that many times over the last year and a half that I've been here, that I've ticked you off or rubbed you the wrong way. That's good. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to take anybody off. Or, I, I'm, you know, I try to follow what the God tells me, and when he, it comes out, it comes out, and if, it's you, if he convicts you, good. He's doing it because he loves you. If he's in, a lot of times you get encouragement because you're doing the right thing. You'll be encouraged. You'll be instructed in righteousness. You'll be trained. You don't know everything, neither do I. We have to learn. And this is why God raised up people with past the teacher, gift the past the teacher. So I'm saying all this because the Thessalonians... They got the full counsel of God from Paul, and they weren't even believers for a year, and yet we got churches in America and even Huntsville. Where they don't even know. I mean, they don't even taught. Have they ever taught the Trinity? Have they taught sanctification, justification? Well, what are they doing, this little sermonettes, you know, for Christianettes, whatever the saying was? That's what you're getting. I'm shocked by it in Alabama. I thought, I, I, I want to have a whole bunch of guys who are into the Word of God. I mean, they were even. I mean, when 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 they came looking for you know looking for a pastor, they knocked on my door. Bert, I was like, "There's nothing in the pipeline." And we, you know, we have a, I, I have a theme background. My pastor was ordained by the colonel. There was nothing in the pipeline. He said, "I was like shocked by that," and I wasn't. You know, I'm, so I'm sitting there going, "Really, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. That's terrible. That's awful." 
That's not a good situation we got here. Where are all these guys that were ordained by the colonel? Where are they, are they, they don't have anybody out there that could, would come to Alabama? I mean, I'm the only guy out here? And Jim? I mean, it's like, unbelievable. So, the word of God is our lifeline to God. It's our power. It's our strength. It's our everything. Man does not live on bread alone, but from everywhere that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the Thessalonians, they were on fire for God. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank, you God, to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. There, see, you don't, when we get to this book, you don't settle on what you've accomplished in the past. Neither can I. What God has accomplished to us in the past, and some of us more than others, you can't rest on your laurels. You haven't arrived yet. You're not perfected yet. The race isn't over yet. And if you've been screwing around and wasting your time and not on fire for God the way you should, hey, God's giving you grace. He's saying, now's the day we start. Start again. Just don't worry about the past. You can't change the past. I can't change the past. I've screwed up. You've screwed up. We all have skeletons in the closet. We all have things that we are afraid, ashamed of. All things we, don't, we can't believe that we wasted our time on. And I'm one of them. But don't, worry, that, that, don't let the past hinder you from doing God's will. He's telling them to keep going for perfection, even though you can't arrive at perfection until you get a resurrection body. We strive for perfection. All this, verse 5, is evidence that God is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, which, is for, which for you, you are suffering. See that? When we suffer undeservedly for blessing, we're showing that we're worthy of the kingdom of God. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Remember, leave room for the wrath of God, Romans 12? Then he says, and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So therefore, people, we'll wrap up this, this study of Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. Therefore, because of these reasons, I believe that, uh, I, I, these reasons, I am of the conviction, is a better word, that the plural form of this word, haliha, which is translated his, his ways in Habakkuk 3.6, it actually speaks of procession of angels who will accompany, accompany the Lord Jesus Christ to planet Earth at his second advent. They will assist him in imprisoning Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. They will also remove every unregenerate person from the face of the earth and put them in torments or Hades until they appear at the great white throne judgment. They will also bring regenerate Jews Back to Jerusalem, Matthew 24, 31 speaks of that. So the service performed by elect angels can be summarized as follows. One, the worship of God. Two, they're messengers of God. Three, soldiers in spiritual combat. We see that in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. Revelation 12, 7 says, Michael and the elect angels are going to toss Satan and the fallen angels out of heaven during the midway point of the 70th week. Furthermore, angels protect, provide, Proclaim the word of God. Execute judgments. Hebrews 1.14 says the elect angels are assigned to you and I. They're ministering spirits. They, look at, they long to look at the things that are salvation. 1 Peter 1.12. They're watching and listening this class today. Bill, you're fully baloney. Hey, it isn't about me. They love to hear God's word. 
whether they like a squeaky voice guy or somebody with a nice southern drawl that sounds like Rhett Butler. Okay? At the end of the day, it's the word of God, not the man, right? If he could use Balaam's ass, he could use Bill Wenstrom. Just, hey, do I have an amen over here? Yes, my buddy over here says amen. Now, as God's servants, you're right there with me too, bud. As God's servants, I gotta hurry up, who are dispatched to the throne, throne room of heaven, to execute God's purposes, we may observe that the ministry of the elect angels falls into several character, categories, and I'll go through these quickly. We'll be running into them again in the future. In relation to Christ, the elect angels perform the following services. One, they prophesied of the birth of Christ. Two, they announced his birth. Three, an angel warned Joseph to take Mary and the baby Jesus and flee into Egypt, Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. And also an angel directed the family to return to Israel after Herod died. We also see in relation to his suffering, though the elect angels performed the following services for our Lord. They ministered to the Lord after his temptation, Matthew 4, 11. Two, they administered to the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, 43. Jesus said he could have called a legion of angels who stood ready to come to his defense if he so desired, Matthew 26, 53. In fact, remember that great story with Elisha and his servant? It was the king of Syria. Who's been telling our, 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 our movements, military movements, to the Israelites? Oh, it's that Elisha guy. He hears everything with the king saying in his bedroom. Because <laughs> God was telling him. So they, get, they finally surround Elisha and his servant. And Elisha goes, Lord, he wasn't worried about it at all because he knew what was protecting him. And Elisha goes, Lord, let my servant see that he's, we're not alone. And he said, chariots of fire, angels all around, elect angels. Do you know I, that you are and I, remember, we're the bride of Christ. We're being protected. If anything happens to us, it's only because it's part of God's plan to bring glory to himself, like it did with his son. We're following his footsteps. But there are angels, elect angels, that are watching you. There are elect angels that are aside each one of us. That's right. Just like there are fallen angels that are assigned to each one of us, that have oppressed us. And you know, you could have physical problems, difficult problems, there's a lot of weird stuff. You know, Ray, they don't know what caused what he had. It's, they're in a mystery. They, I mean, they tried everything. I wouldn't be surprised if it was, you know, Satan's kingdom. You, you don't know that. There are weird things that can happen. They, they, we, try to, we try to explain it away with science. Sometimes, most of us, we're trying to do that, that's good. But I want you know, I want you to say, well, I got mono, mono because you know I, the angels are just afflicted me. Maybe they did, but I don't want you to blame the angels, fallen angels, for everything. But I'm telling you, it does happen. They do oppress people and they do hurt them physically. Okay, and look at Job, perfect example of that. We also see that the angels, in relation to his re the Lord's resurrection, perform the following services. One, an angel rolled away the stone from the tomb. Matthew 28, verses 1 and 2. Two, angels announced his resurrection to the women on the resurrection morning. Luke chapter 24, verses 5 through 7. Number three, angels were present at his ascension and gave instruction to his disciples. Remember in Acts 1, 10 to 11, they look it up with their mouths like, you know, your jaws, jaws drop. Like, hey, what are you guys looking up there for? He's coming back in the same way. Okay? Don't worry, he'll come back. And you'll be with him. <laughs> now, and lastly, in relation to Habakkuk 3.6 and the second advent to Christ, in relation to his coming again, the elect angels performed the following services. One, the voice of the archangel 
will be heard at the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians 4.16. It's not, when we talk about trumpets in there too, the trumpet is never, that's not relation, the seven seal trumpet, bowl judgments, it's not those trumpets of revelation. It's in relation to the church. They will do this in our study of the day, Lord. They're not the same trumpet, okay? By the way, in Israel, when you re sounded off the trumpet that was used for different reasons, one was to call the, the armies to war, okay? Number two, in relation to our Lord's second, ad, uh, second coming, they will accompany him in his glorious return to earth at the second advent, Matthew 25, 31, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, which we just read. And then lastly, they will separate the wheat from the tares at Christ's coming, Matthew chapter 13, verses 39 and 34, uh, 39 and 40. The fallen angels, excuse me, the uh, elect angels, at the second advent, they will take every unsaved person, Jew or Gentile, off the face of the earth at the second advent of Christ. They're deposited into to torments. They'll stay there till the second advent, uh, the, 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 the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, 11 through 15. At that time, their sentence will be executed along with the devil and his angels. Okay? And the millennial will, start, millennium will only start with believers. Those who survive the, the, the judgments of the tribulation of the second advent of Christ that were believers, Jew and Gentile, and there'll be many Gentiles, and the Jew, there'll be a national regeneration of Israel at that time, they will start the millennium and they'll repopulate the earth. They get their resurrection bodies later on down the road. So, as we close with this, what are we going to do about what we're doing in this life right now? How are we going to live our lives? in light of these tremendous things that are about to happen, and they're imminent. I say this, we go on, march on to glory, we march on doing the will of God, we march on through trials and tribulations, we march on putting God's word into practice, showing the power of God in our lives, showing that yes, Jesus does work, I don't need a pill, I don't need the booze, I don't need all this, the drugs, I got the word of God, alive and powerful. I can face any adversity, I'm gonna be a soldier of Christ Jesus, no matter what this world gives me, I'm gonna march on to victory, because I already got the victory. You and I already have the victory, he won the victory. All we're doing is appropriating the victory by our faith. And faith appropriates the omnipotence of God. With the omnipotence of God, we can move mountains. And this is what this country needs now is a church in America that believes the gospel and will march on to victory and have appropriate by faith the great power that is available to us, the same power that's going to destroy the Lord's enemies at his second advent. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Thank you for everyone here. And we pray that the work of the Spirit would be mighty here in this chapel. In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.